Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your guide to news in Chicago and beyond. This is the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. That's a scary statement, but it might very well be true. Climate legislation to invest in clean energy has failed to get through Congress time and time again. On Wednesday, President Joe Biden addressed the nation from a former coal plant in Massachusetts that's being converted into an offshore wind facility. Here's part of what he had to say. Come here today with a message. As president, I have a responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. This comes as temperatures in the United Kingdom rose above 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 degrees Fahrenheit, a national record. Temperatures in France also broke records, setting the countryside ablaze there and in Spain. We're also seeing extreme heat in the U.S., with 28 states under heat advisories. Here to give us more context to this crisis of rising temperatures is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She's also the director of Loyola University Chicago's Baumart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Also with us is Illinois state climatologist Trent Ford. Karen, first, let's talk more about Biden's announcement. It's significant that he was at the Brayton Point Power Station in Massachusetts. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a really lovely backdrop in a sense for one of the messages he's trying to bring forward, which is that there is a pathway for all communities in a clean energy economy. As you mentioned, this was a coal-fired power plant and it closed in 2017. And it's being transitioned into supporting offshore wind. And so it is an example of infrastructure that places links to the grid. So it's reusable. It's a replicable idea. But that infrastructure transitioning and creating some current jobs, some future jobs, but creating clean power. So it reinforced this idea that there's an economic pathway going forward. Yeah. The the president announced that he's taking executive action to address the, quote, clear and present danger of climate change. What does he mean? What's he going to be doing? He is looking at offshore wind as one of the pieces. So there's a little piece here that is about creating more pathways for reduced emissions. And that's obviously the massive point behind the questions about climate is how do we actually reduce emissions? So the federal government's going to make it easier to create offshore wind in a couple of places. The big dollars, though, that he talked about were FEMA money that can now help communities build and and rebuild, essentially, to withstand changes that have already started due to climate change, fire, heat storms. And then he also changed some of the guidance around a program that's called LIHEAP. So in the energy community, it's a very well-known program that is used typically to help low-income individuals heat their homes. But he's changing the guidance so it can now be used to cool and to have air conditioning. So it's really a switch of the history of the program that has been transitioning. But now you can literally get air conditioning equipment with this program. Trent, let's bring you in here. The president hasn't declared a national climate emergency, which is what some advocates are calling for. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, certainly, I mean, we always think about climate change as something that's on the future, uh, maybe the near future, but always sort of a future-looking thing um, with our projections from models. But but in reality, I mean, we're seeing it right in front of us right now. And, and so 
Um, you know, planning for climate change is extremely important, as is mitigating the, the impacts of it. But um, it's something that we're facing globally, but locally as well. Um, and in, in many places right now, we're seeing emergencies that are caused by climate change. Uh, for example, the, the heat waves and, and fires in the UK. So um, it, it, whether or not it's denoted as such, uh, it is an emergency. It is an issue for, for uh, you know, most people around the globe. Yeah. He says he's considering it, but he's unsure if he's legally allowed to. What do you think, Karen? Well, absolutely agree that if this isn't an emergency from the macro sense, it's hard to think of what is. But typically, when presidents have declared something national emergencies, it's been something much more temporal, much more acute. And climate is sadly an ongoing crisis. So absolutely, the president is seeing his choices removed in addressing climate with Senator Manchin now not supporting substantial climate legislation and the Supreme Court reducing or changing what had been perceived to be EPA authority. So his options are shrinking a bit. So the emergency idea is a big one, but it would absolutely be contested in court and it hasn't really been used in this way. So he's got to be sure that it would stand up if he does it. So I want to zero in on the extreme heat that's happening, Karen. As I mentioned, we've been seeing record temperatures across the globe. So just bring us up to speed on, on what's happening. Yeah, these these really are extraordinary times in terms of heat. In the U.S., I think we've had 100 million people under heat warnings, official heat warnings. And temperatures have done things like hit 115 degrees in Texas or in Oklahoma. And as you mentioned, you know, while we're experiencing this, we're also seeing a heat wave in Europe. And you mentioned the U.K. Mm-hmm. and setting heat records. They did set extraordinary records, and they were breaking records that were just set in 2019. So this is all wow. in the context of from 2013 to 2021, those years all rank among the 10 warmest we've seen. So the context is we're seeing heat rise generally, and then it exacerbates these high heat events that are incredibly dangerous across the globe and certainly for us in Chicago. I mean, in, in Europe, it's so bad Karen, it's causing train tracks even to bend and roads to to buckle. What adaptations do we need to deal with these dangerously high temperatures? Yeah, the temperatures are really they're impacting people you know first and foremost, and they're absolutely impacting infrastructure. And uh, there are ways to build infrastructure with a lens to what the future weather patterns will be as it's impacted by climate. Now you can do things, even with the electrical grid, you can quote-unquote harden the grid so that storms are less likely to take out power lines. Now you can do things in homes where, uh, down in, in Florida, where you see a lot of high winds and hurricanes, there are regulations about the force of wind that glass and windows can withstand. Um, so there are ways to think about all the different parts of infrastructure around us. But it does require looking at projections that are not the same as what the history has been. These these are new eras, and so you have to look at different challenges. Trent, how unusual is this heat? That's a tough question, honestly, because it in in historical context, kind of what Karen was mentioning, it is extremely unusual, if not unprecedented. Um, you know, to put it in, in context for folks in Chicago, um, what's going on in the UK right now uh, would be the equivalent of Chicago seeing 120 degree temperature, not heat index, but temperature. Given mm. you know, we go back in history, the the, the highest temperature recorded in the state of Illinois is 117 degrees. So unprecedented in the historical context. However, not unprecedented in the looking at the projections 
so globally, but if we look at regionally too, projections indicate a consistent increase uh, in average temperatures, maximum temperatures, minimum temperatures, um, and these extremes that come along with it because a change in the mean means a change in the extremes uh, for the next several decades, uh, at least through the 21st century, even wow. with uh, pretty strong mitigation measures. So um, how unusual we, we, we kind of denote these temperatures today in the UK, in the central US, um, it, it, it's becoming less and less unusual, less and less anomalous because uh, people are being exposed to these sorts of temperatures, these sorts of heat um, extremes uh, more frequently. And, 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 and it's likely that that will continue um, at least through the 21st century. Yeah. You know, what is considered dangerously hot, Trent, in the state of Illinois? That's a really good question. So they, we have different metrics. Uh, heat is actually, from a meteorological standpoint, fairly simple, right? We, we have just a, an increase in temperature compared to something really dynamically complex like a tornado. But it's actually really hard to measure uh, when we relate it to, to impacts, like for public health. So we have different metrics we use to measure. So there's just an absolute temperature. Uh, there's the heat index, which combines the effect of humidity and wind. Um, but uh, some, some folks may not know that the temperature that goes into the heat index calculation is, is measured in the shade. So if folks are working out or playing out in the sun, they may be experiencing a much higher um, stress from that heat. And so there's other things like wet bulb globe temperature. Generally speaking, um, the National Weather Service in the Chicagoland area uses a, uh, a forecasted or observed heat index value of anywhere between 100 and about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that's when yeah. they, they, they uh, um, put out warnings or watches, uh, excessive heat warnings, uh, for, um, for, for, to, to, for, to basically raise awareness that, that, that these are potentially hazardous conditions. However, there have been many studies that have shown that that threshold may actually be pretty high uh, as it relates to actually observed public health impacts, and that many, especially the most vulnerable, thinking about the elderly, those who uh, have pre-existing health conditions, children, may actually experience uh, some, some pretty significant negative impacts from heat at, at thresholds well below that. So it really does depend on the, the, the individual that we're talking about, the, the, the uh, environment that they're in, whether they're exercising or working vigorously or just sitting, whether they're able to mm -hmm. gain access to the shade or out in the full sun, it, it really does matter. But certainly when we see temperatures, especially coupled with humidity, when we see those temperatures inch above the mid to upper 90s, that's when we, we do begin to see those, um, the, those, those sorts of uh, public health impacts on a large scale. Karen, Trent just sort of outlined the toll of, of this extreme heat on people, on us. Can you talk about the impact on biodiversity? This is another stressor for the, the ecology around us. Um, just like we're not equipped to deal with these temperatures, neither are many of the critters, as it were, and the, many of the plants. So you actually see you know, plants wilting in the heat a bit, uh, mm -hmm. which is really challenging. And you see wildlife not being able to get the water and the hydration that they need. So this absolutely pushes the extremes of what we would expect. Um, it does speak to those broader questions of you know, having places that can be cooler. And so having trees, et cetera, is helpful for the close-in part. But this adds another stress. We're, we're facing globally serious questions and concerns about biodiversity. And these temperature extremes add to that. They put animals under stress. They put plants under stress. Uh, and that, over time, is something that becomes harder and harder to recover from. What about the uh, economy, Trent, and agriculture? 
the effect on those? Yeah, so yeah, I mean the the impacts that that Karen mentioned to kind of what we think of as our natural ecosystems are the same that we experience with our agriculture as well. Um, uh, you know, especially when it's coupled with uh, a precipitation deficit, we see our our primary crops, um, both grain and and, and food crops, um, you know, wilting under these high temperatures, which uh, puts a lot of stress on the plant. Which means they're not the plant is not focusing its resources on uh, fruit or grain production. So we generally see lower yields when we have these very very hot summers. And that's especially the case when we have those very warm nights, like we've been experiencing an increased frequency in the Chicagoland area. And then uh, economically, um, you know, we, we all know when we, when we are living through these sorts of very hot uh, conditions that we don't operate uh, as individuals as, uh, as effectively or as efficiently as we would mm-hmm. under a, a more comfortable temperatures. And, and studies on the macro scale have shown that, that productivity, economic productivity, decreases significantly with these, uh, with these sorts of heat waves to the order of billions of dollars a year. And so it's not just a, a loss of, of um, you know, for crop yields, for example, for agriculture, but a loss through productivity as well. So, you know, the economic costs of these extreme heat events is enormous and in, in many cases is, um, you know, is it focused on as much as, let's say, the public health impacts. Last fall, Karen, uh, Illinois passed the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, or CEJA. That's encouraging, right? Briefly tell us a bit more. Sure. And, and building on these questions of the economy, this, as you mentioned, is is legislation that is long that has been passed and has long-term implications for Illinois. Anchored in it is an idea and a goal to get to 100% clean energy by 2050. So to really position Illinois and everyone Ill in, in Illinois for that green energy future. It has within it things like a coal to solar energy storage program. So that's actually going to be assisting some coal plants that have closed or are about to close in the state of Illinois to transition to be focused on solar and storage. So that's actually you know, an example in a sense of the backdrop that President Biden was using of a coal plant being part of the clean economy. We'll see more and more of that in Illinois. Um, so it's building in. It has job yeah. training centers around the state and it has the subsidies for electric vehicles. Before I let you go, Karen, you know, we're going to get more into the draft of a new city plan that includes the environment as as one of its pillars for for policies over the next decade. Is this an important step in helping us adapt to climate change and extreme heat like this? Yeah, this is this will be Chicago's first plan in decades. And so that's important in and of itself. And it's built on pillars. And one of those eight is a focus on energy, environment and climate. So the idea that Chicago is embedding that in their overall plan is critical. They actually reference heat data in it as part of this idea. Now, what's interesting is the city also just recently released its own climate plan. So we've got to make sure that those are integrated. But that climate plan has a very ambitious carbon reduction goal. And this broader We Will plan incorporates those ideas and also really is intentional about a comprehensive, inclusive economy. And it's embedding environment, climate and economy right in it. Around the world, we're seeing dangerously hot temperatures in places that are not built for this kind of heat. From the southwest to the Great Plains, this morning more than 20 million people are waking up to dangerous and unrelenting heat. Today has been the hottest day ever recorded in Britain. Rare wildfires broke out across the British capital as it broiled in its hottest day in history. Spain, Greece, France, Italy and the UK all battling blazes, while Portugal reports more than 1,000 deaths from the heat. The 
Despite what President Biden is calling the, quote, clear and present danger of climate change, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has squashed any last hope that he would support legislation investing in renewable energy. We just discussed executive action President Biden's taking to address this crisis, and much of it is funneling resources to state and municipal governments. So how is Chicago taking on this issue? Well, city officials released a new 10-year plan that includes the environment, climate, and energy as one of its pillars. Angela Tovar is the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Chicago, and she's here to tell us more about the We Will Chicago plan and how you can give your input. Angela, this plan is the first of its kind since the 60s. Tell us more about how it came together. So as Karen mentioned, this is the first citywide plan that the city has put forth since 1966. And as you mentioned, this is just a plan that is in draft form now. So we spent all of last year working with um, community stakeholders throughout the city. We had tons of engagement events, art events, um, you know, community level engagement events to solicit feedback and to really understand um, through the hundreds of folks that participated in those events and also folks that volunteered um, their time to understand what the values of the city were. And from there, we organized into eight planning pillars, one of them being um, energy, climate and energy to identify strategic priorities uh, for the city of Chicago. Um, and so now the plan that was presented last week is a plan that is in draft form, and there will be opportunity for feedback for people that are interested in various policy issues to provide um, their input and feedback on what is presented. So as I, as I mentioned, the environment's a pillar of this plan. Angela, dig into the, the, the main focus areas for us. Sure. So I should say one thing that's important here is that the plan has two overarching values uh, that are critical to mention. Um, the overarching values of the plan are equity. Um, so just ensuring that both in process and in outcome that this plan revolves, results in fair and just act, access and um, resources so that everyone has what they need to thrive in the city of Chicago and then, of course, resiliency, which is important within the context of climate change. Um, so meaning that all individuals and groups have resources they, that they need to adapt and survive to the stresses of things like climate change and other things, and also just to change overall. Um, and so when we get into the energy pillar, um, the focus there is really on greenhouse gas emissions reductions, of course, from the mitigation side but also from um, understanding that Chicago needs to put forth more um, adaptive measures and resiliency measures to prepare for climate change. Um, and also think about the role of nature-based solutions, right? So mm -hmm. that we can think about resiliency measures, but also benefiting people as well. So as you mentioned, reducing emissions, that's a key goal. Uh, adaptations to extreme heat are, are also essential, Angela. What's the city's plan to prepare for more high temperature days? Yes. So within the context of the plan, I think that something that's important here is this is also an examination of, of past choices that the city has, has made historically. And that is so critical here because, as you know, um, we have not always prioritized all city residents in this process. And we really have to focus moving forward 
And, you know, as the mayor has said continuously over the course of their administration, using equity as our North Star here. So understanding how our decisions in the past have led to unintended consequences. And within the context of climate change, a lot of this is focused, the We Will Plan is focused on prioritizing community uh, resiliency efforts in Black Mm -hmm. and Latino communities where they have not been prioritized historically. Those are the same neighborhoods we know are especially vulnerable to the climate crisis, given existing vulnerabilities that can be exacerbated in the time of extreme heat. And so the focus in the We Will Plan is prioritizing neighborhoods that are most vulnerable to climate change, understanding how we as the city can better um, grapple with our historic harms and um, provide policy and decision-making processes that create Mm -hmm. better outcomes for our communities and thinking about the role of mitigation. So reducing carbon emissions while also providing more community benefits and alleviating the burdens of climate change. And then again, advancing those nature-based solutions, expanding access to open space, green infrastructure, trees and native plants for the benefits of all of our communities. So there are plans to improve tree coverage in those low-income communities. Yes. And so, um, you know, the We Will Plan is a strategic framework. As Karen mentioned, Sasha, and this is also um, the time where the city has put forth our 2022 Climate Action Plan, which is, you know, the the We Will Plan is the citywide plan. And of course, it's focused on the eight pillars. The Climate Action Plan is a a more granular, um, focusing on greenhouse gas emissions reductions while driving equitable co-benefits that all of our communities need. And so within that plan, there is a roadmap, um, and that is something that the city has already um, moved forward with. We do have an equitable tree strategy called Our Root Chicago, which looks at increasing the tree canopy in neighborhoods that need it the most using socioeconomic data and uh, tree coverage and other factors to, to use trees as an intervention to alleviate the urban heat island effect and, um, you know, create more resiliency to extreme heat in communities. What's the city doing to protect outdoor workers impacted by this extreme heat? That's that's a big issue. Yes. So there are a number of things that we can be doing as a city and that we are doing as a city. And I will name a couple of them. So in addition to expanding the tree canopy, and providing um, and providing um, relief for communities. You know, we have also activated our emergency response, which means that we do have cooling centers, libraries, and public buildings that are open for respite for all. Um, we want to make sure that our enforcement teams are out there during this time, and that if anybody is worried about workforce violations, that they can call three one one to let the city know. Um, And then, of course, as you know, um, as we move forward and think about our building stock, uh, we are also thinking about how we can increase cooling in buildings. Um, And you may recall um, back in June, the city passed an update to our building code, which Mm -hmm. required um, more cooling in residential buildings, particularly in, in new construction for senior facilities and for larger residential buildings. And then um, requiring some buildings um, to have uh, cooling centers in place to bring additional respite to people. 
you know, extreme temperatures, this is a global problem. So how, how are you working with other cities to achieve climate goals? I know that there's an event that's coming up at the end of the month with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, right? Yes, we have an event on July 28th from 12 to 1.30, um, which is a virtual event. So people can head to their website um, to learn, learn more about that event. And that's at, just at the chicagocouncil.org. Um, that event is, um, I, I will be there talking more about urban resiliency. But of course, okay. Chicago is part of many uh, global networks. So we work collectively with mayors and with administrations across the world to be thinking collectively, not only about resiliency and adaptation measures so that, you know, we can provide folks with the resources and tools that they need in this moment, but also thinking about mitigation, right? How we lower our greenhouse gas emissions to minimize um, the already uh, uh, dangerous effects of climate change that exist now. Right. So how is the city going to remain accountable I think it is what we want to know here and actually achieve these goals in 10 years. Yeah. So going back to the, we will plan. Um, the important thing here is that we will, will have to be adopted by the Chicago plan commission. And, and in fact, there is a plan for it to go before the uh, commission in early 2023. If we will is adopted and it, and it, it this will lead to um, multiple implementation measures by the city. So these goals that have been outlined by Chicagoans will now see themselves in new legislation and policies. It could be an executive orders or other action items. So mm -hmm. folks will be able to track progress because that progress will be able to move forward through the passage of, of all of these things that I've already laid out. Um, right. And so it will be important for folks to track that. We will provide and be more transparency about how the city is um, taking action on both um, We Will and then, of course, on the Climate Action Plan as well. And remind us how folks can leave comments about what else they might like to see in this plan. Um, yes. So we are taking public comments through to the end of the year, and folks can go to wewillchicago.com. Um, there will be, that's where the draft plan is located, and there is opportunities to review the, uh, the draft plan there and to also take a survey to provide input on the final plan before it heads to the plan commission in 2023. Trent, you've been listening along to our conversation. Your initial reaction to what we just heard from the city's chief sustainability officer. Yeah, at face value, it's great. It really is to see uh, the, you know, the, the economic leader of Illinois in Chicago taking the steps needed to make a, uh, a more resilient city uh, in the face of all of these changes. I know we've, you know, Sasha, today we focus a lot on extreme heat, but thinking yeah. about flooding, changes in storms, more variable lake levels, I mean, these are all things that Chicago has to deal with. And so it really does provide a good leadership here with this, um, you know, with this, this plan and, and specifically the, the fourth pillar, uh, the environment, climate, and energy, to lay out these things of, of not only here's what we're planning on doing, but here's what we've sort of gotten wrong in the past. And Angela mentioned that, and I, I do appreciate that because, you know, you go through this uh, this plan, not only mm -hmm. is equity and environmental justice woven throughout the whole thing, it's not just kind of linked to every once in a while, like you'll see in some plans, but um, but you know the the the, the acknowledgments that there are that that inequities that exist in the cities were there purposely, and and so that that is really important. Now, yeah. um, 
you know, I, th- I think also the fact that this is one pillar in an eight-pillar plan is, is also really important because some of the other pillars, and this is maybe something they can do within the plan and hopefully are cognizant of as they move forward to your question about, about actually carrying these things out and being accountable, is that these other issues and these other pillars are climate resilience issues as well. I think about housing, for example. When mm-hmm. we have housing insecurity in a city like Chicago, it means more folks are exposed, have the higher vulnerability to be exposed to things like extreme heat, like flooding, like air quality issues. Uh, Same thing with public health and safety and and community engagement. Uh, Folks are naturally, we have better outcomes when it comes to climate resiliency when communities are engaged with with their local governments. That's really important. So again, thinking about not just from the climate standpoint of, okay, do we have more cooling centers? Are we ready to go when we have extreme heat? But do we have a healthier Chicago overall, which generally leads to uh, better outcomes in in, in climate resiliency? You know, and it's pretty cool in in the Midwest for eight, I'd say nine months even out of the year, right? Are there adaptations, Trent, that we haven't made here yet that we should? Yeah, I mean, uh, so... You mean regarding the plan as what's actually put forward or what's actually been carried out so far in the Midwest? What's actually been carried out so far in the Midwest? Yeah, cer- certainly. I mean, uh, when we think about what, we, what we're looking like as far as our climate in the next 30, 50, 100 years, um, I mean, there are definitely adaptation strategies that, that, that we do need to take. Um, you know, certainly when we look at the, the last 30 to you know, 20 to 30 years, it, picking out the city of Chicago in particular, the, the amount of the, the atrification of, of the canopy, what we call the urban canopy, basically tree space in especially lower income black and brown neighborhoods in Chicago is, is really unfortunate because, because that, is, that is something that needs to be increasing, not decreasing. And so certainly what's laid out in this plan, that's one step that absolutely has to, to be made. We need more of that green space. Um, we need better housing security. That is, again, a big resilience, and that's something that most American cities are really dealing with, and a lot of places are going the opposite direction when it comes to housing security. So those things are all, you know, the the kind of adaptation strategies that need to take place. And so what's laid out in this plan here, this pillar, all of these steps are definitely steps that have to be taken, not just in Chicago, but cities all around the country. It's just kind of what your your final question was about, which, you know, really is, is how much of this can be done. Um, and and how much is is actually going to be done in the relatively short period of time that we have to do it? Yeah, my follow up to that is is you know the city's giving itself ten years to to meet its goals for for climate change. Is that quick enough? Do we have that kind of time? When it comes to adaptation, yes, ten years. When it is comes to climate change, timeline. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, we we are seeing climate change now. Um, and, and as far as mitigation and reducing the overall impacts are concerned, anything we do in the next 50 to 100 years is important. But certainly what, what the vast majority of projections are indicating is if we want to avoid the, the, the kind of the overall most impactful issues related to climate change, we really need to drop uh, carbon dioxide and other emissions um, by really by 2030. So mm-hmm. when we think about greenhouse gas emissions, which I know is, is more of a plan of the or part of the, the climate action plan the city put out more recently, um, that really does need to happen in that 10 to 15 year cycle. When it comes to adaptation, there may be a little bit more time. Um, yeah. However, I, I really think that the, the, the 10 year period here to get all of this work done is, is really 
um, it, it's good being cognizant of, of the relatively short amount of time I have to do this. So I, I think the 10-year plan is actually, yeah. is actually spot on. That's all for today's Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for spending your time with us. We'll catch you right back here tomorrow to get caught up on all the major headlines this week during our weekly news recap. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.